p.m. This meeting is being held in person in City Hall, room 400, and broadcast live on SFGovTV and available to view online or listen by calling 415-655-0001, as authorized by California Government Code Section 54953E and Mayor Breed's 45th Supplement to her December 25th, 2020 Emergency Proclamation. It is possible that some members of the Small Business Commission may attend this meeting remotely. In that event, those members will participate and vote by video. The Small Business Commission thanks Media Services and SFGovTV for televising the meeting, which can be viewed on SFGovTV2 or live streamed at sfgovtv.org. Before I begin, I'd like to remind all individuals present and attending the meeting in person today that all health and safety protocols and building rules must be adhered to at all times. This includes keeping masks on. We appreciate your cooperation with these important rules and requirements. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There's an opportunity for general public comment at the end of the meeting, and there will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by video or call-in. For each item, the commission will take public comment first from people attending the meeting in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Members of the public calling in, number is 415-655-0001. The access code is 2487-601-5734. Press pound and then pound again to be added to the line. When you, will hear, when you hear the meeting discussion, you'll be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, dial star three to be added to the speaker line. If you dial star three before public comments called, you'll be added to the queue. When you are called for public comment, please mute the device that you are listening to the meeting on, and when it's your time to speak, you'll be prompted to do so. Public comment during the meeting is limited to three minutes per speaker, and an alarm will sound once the time has finished. Speakers are requested but not required to state their names. We will now proceed with roll call. Oh. SFGovTV, please play the small business slide. assistance with small business matters, particularly at this time, you can find us online or via telephone, and as always, our services are free of charge. Before item number one is called, I'd like to start by thanking Media Services and TV for coordinating this virtual hearing and helping to run the meeting. Please call item number one. Item one, roll call. Commissioner Carter? Here. Commissioner Dickerson? Present. Commissioner Huey? Here. President Laguana? Here. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena? Here. Vice President Zazunas? Present. Awesome. There you go. President, you have a quorum. Thank you. The San Francisco Small Business Commission and Office of Small Business Staff acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in, in accordance with their traditions, the Ramaytush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. 
As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Before I go to item number two, I want to take a moment of presidential privilege here to acknowledge the passing of former Commissioner Kathleen Dooley. Kathleen served on this commission for well over a decade and was the embodiment of public service. Uh, Director, Katie, uh, Director Katie will be, uh, excuse me, uh, she will be uh, uh, leaving room in, in the director's presentation tonight for uh, comments uh, that commissioners may want to make about Commissioner Dooley, and we'll be recognizing her at that time. Next item, please. Item two, presentation on urban crime, community investment, and policing. This is a discussion item, and today we have Professor Patrick Sharkey pre presenting for us today. He's a professor of sociology and public affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Wonderful. Uh, and is uh, Professor Sharkey on? I'm here, yeah. Can Wonderful. you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you perfectly. Uh, this is our first time back in this room in two plus years. And I like how uh, Commissioner Sharkey is now introducing Professor Sharkey. Like that's, you didn't do this on purpose? Yeah, I, I think we, we arranged that. Uh, but uh, anyways, as, as, a, as a way of introducing Professor Sharkey uh, to the rest of the commissioners, uh, he is an extraordinary researcher and sociologist. Uh, I listened to him on a podcast with Ezra Klein where he talked about uh, criminal justice uh, reform and, and how uh, better ways to handle policing. And, and so, Professor, we thought it'd be really helpful and instructive to all of us if you could share with us uh, some of what you've learned and uh, uh, help uh, point towards better paths for how uh, cities like ours can move forward with uh, policing and law enforcement. Sure, that sounds good. Thanks for having me here. Uh, I did get a chuckle out of the, the there aren't many sharkies out there, so I like this version. Um, so I, I'm trying to share slides, but I, I don't have to um, if, it, if it's uh, too complicated. Um, you, you guys switched it up. The whole world's using Zoom, and you put us on this WebEx thing. So I, uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how to share my screen here. Carrie, do you know how to do that? Yeah, I, I think. Are you able to share your screen now? Um, so I'm, I'm getting a, a, a message when I try to do it. It says, uh, uh, "Set up WebEx." Uh, oh, okay. Let me let me work so, on, let me work on getting your slides up then, and you can start, and I'll try and I'll sure, try and get them up. Sure, and it's no problem if, if it doesn't work. Um, I can just talk it through. So essentially, you know, what I thought I would do is just kind of uh, put this recent rise of violence, particularly gun violence, in some historical context, and, and give some thoughts on. Uh, how to respond uh, or potential strategies to respond. Um, I hope it's not too abstract. Uh, I obviously don't know the particular uh, circumstances or political environment in San Francisco as well as I do other places. So um, 
I'll do my best to make it as applied or as useful as possible. Uh, but um, uh, afterwards in the Q&A, we can get into a little bit more detail if there's time. Um, so essentially, I, I wanna make a, a few different points. The, the first is that the rise in violence that has happened since 2020 really has to be seen in a longer historical context. Um, so we've had essentially four periods uh, or major trends in violence in the U.S. And in the first, you know, violence has been falling throughout most of the history. I'm just going to recreate my graphs with hand motions. That's, that's my point here. That'll work just fine. Um, <laughs> so violence has been falling throughout most of U.S. history and fell all the way through the early 1960s. Um, and then at that point, violence rose very sharply, uh, and it moved from about 4.4 murders for every 100,000 people up to around 9 or 10. Uh, so more than doubled over that period and remained at a very high level through the first years of the 1990s. At that point, violence fell, uh, fell down again to about 4.4 uh, in 2014, that was one of the, 2014 was really the low point. That was one of the safest years in the history of the country. Uh, and, and then violence has risen sharply from 2014 onwards. So when we think about what has changed recently, I really want to, to kind of situate this, this very recent rise in violence with the broader change that's taken place since 2014. Uh, that's great. Thanks. Um, there you go. Yes, that's a, that's a graph that I was pointing to. So if, um, uh, if you could go to the next slide. So I'll make four points here. And uh, the the first is just to be aware of where we are, because the national trends actually are, are very well reflected in what has happened in San Francisco as well. Um, so uh, we've had these four different periods. If you just go to the next slide. Since 2014, uh, this is from my website, which tracks violence in the largest hundred cities. And 2000, since 2014, all, all of the orange and red dots here reflect places where violence has risen. So mm -hmm. San Francisco is not alone. San Francisco hasn't had one of the more, um, uh, the, the uh, uh, um, Violence has risen much less in San Francisco than it has in a lot of cities. I know that is, is, uh, doesn't make anyone feel better there, but um, the point is violence has risen across the nation since 2014, and it's risen by about 50%. If you go to the next slide, the, the only additional point I'll make here uh, is that those that circle at the bottom there reflects the fact that the largest increases in violence have occurred in the poorest neighborhoods. Okay, so since 2014, fatal shootings have increased by 91% in high poverty neighborhoods. And they've also increased quite a bit in lower poverty neighborhoods, but this is a, a common feature of violence. Uh, it, 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 the spatial distribution of where violence happens hasn't shifted over time, but is always concentrated in the most disadvantaged communities. So violence amplifies inequality. It hits the poorest communities harder. Uh, it affects life in the most disadvantaged communities the most. Um, next slide, please. Okay, so that's the first point. Just go one more. Okay, so the second point. 
to understand why American neighborhoods are vulnerable to violence, I, I make the case that we have to go back to the late 1960s. And next slide. Um, if, if you uh, think about what was happening, and, and this is my reading based on the historical record there, I know there are folks in the room who lived through this, um, so correct uh, whatever I get wrong. But when you look at the set of challenges that became very visible in the late 1960s and how we as a nation decided to respond, I make the case that we, instead of kind of treating this set of challenges, and by that I mean rising unemployment, joblessness, concentrated poverty, the rise of pollution, uh, which became very visible in American cities uh, during that decade, um, in addition to homelessness, in addition to social unrest of various forms and rising gun violence. Uh, I make the case that our response has really emerged in the 1960s and then has been very stable since then. And we took the response as a nation uh, of, of interpreting the rise of violence uh, as a, a um, uh, as explained by widespread lawlessness and disorder. And, and that then led to a policy response that I refer to as abandonment and punishment. So abandon, abandonment essentially meaning that uh, the federal government was no longer going to try to respond to rising inequality through large scale investment, uh, through a war on poverty, uh, such as uh, what uh, the this, this strategy looked like in the 1960s. Instead, political influence moved away from central cities, populations moved away from central cities, uh, federal funding moved away from central cities, um, and instead we took a response uh, that focused on the institutions of punishment. That is, instead of trying to deal with the problems of rising inequality through investment, uh, the U.S. Uh, instead invested in prison systems, it invested in law enforcement as the way to deal not just with violence, but with all the problems when you have concentrated poverty. So this, I argue, if you could go to the next slide, this, I argue, creates the conditions for violence. So it doesn't automatically translate into violence, but when you have extreme inequality uh, in the U.S. context, because of our combination of economic inequality and racial and economic segregation, inequality translates into areas of concentrated disadvantage. Those areas in the U.S. tend to be places of disinvestment, that is, areas where resources are extracted over time. This undermines core community institutions, and by institutions I mean everything from kind of maintenance of public spaces like parks, playgrounds, alleyways, sidewalks, libraries, but also institutions like churches, schools, community centers, all the, the, the places that bring people together into a community. Uh, with concentrated disadvantage, those places started to wither away uh, in, on a large scale. This makes it harder for neighbors to interact with each other, to get to know other parents and the friends of, 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 of their children. This creates the conditions for violence to emerge. So I'm arguing that this is all in the background. This is why America, uh, America's cities are vulnerable to rising violence. All of these changes, plus one more factor, the prevalence of guns in the U.S., which really started to rise uh, sharply in the 1960s. 
Uh, next slide, please, if we could. Okay, so the second key point is that our nation's response to extreme urban inequality created the conditions for, for plus the prevalence of guns created the conditions for high levels of violence. And then our response over time has relied on the police and the prison system. The third point I want to make here is that this response can reduce violence. So one of the points that I think uh, progressives in particular really push back hard on um, is, is that the police can actually be effective in reducing violence. And I want to make that clear that we have really strong evidence that when there are more police on the street, violence falls uh, and that police, if they are targeting particular places, particularly if they are working with the community to try to solve local problems, we have really good evidence, experimental evidence, lots of natural experiments that tell us that more police on the street can reduce violence. The second part of that is equally important. When we rely primarily on the police and the prison system to respond to violence and all of the problems that come with extreme urban inequality, it can in some places be effective in controlling violence, but it comes with tremendous costs. Okay, and, and the consequence of this approach is to weaken communities rather than strengthen communities. It weakens communities because it takes people out of their neighborhoods, it takes people out of their families, so it undermines family life, it undermines community life, um, and it has a set of additional costs. We've seen those costs up front uh, most vividly over the past six years, but they've been around for a long time. Those costs come in the form of aggressive and sometimes violent policing. So one out of every 1,000 black men will be killed by the police, okay? Uh, that's, that stat is just, you can't overstate it. We can't rely on, a, on an approach that, that centers law enforcement when one out of every 1,000 black men in this country will be killed by the police um, uh, when 1,000 people are killed by the police every year. Um, mm -hmm. So a reliance on the police and the prison system leads to, in many cases, aggressive policing, sometimes violent policing. It leads to intensive surveillance. It leads to uh, uh, widespread mistrust between residents of communities that are targeted by law enforcement uh, and not just the police, but the state more generally. Uh, and it leads to mass incarceration. And we are only now beginning, I'm sorry, my dog wants my attention here. We, we're only now beginning to see the cross-generational consequences of mass incarceration. We're seeing now the impact that this has, is having on families and the kids of uh, uh, family members who have been incarcerated. Um, so I think I skipped a few slides, but maybe uh, if you could just advance uh, so those, these are just showing the scale of what I'm talking about. You can advance one more, maybe. Uh, right. Okay, so if we hold both of these ideas in our mind, that there is a model to deal with violence, but it comes with tremendous costs, the question then becomes, well, is there an alternative? Is there a different model? And the point that I want to make, and I want to really emphasize uh, the, the evidence behind this, um, is, is that there is a different model, a model that centers 
network of residents and community organizations has tremendous potential to reduce violence, and it also has potential to strengthen communities. So it comes without the costs of undermining communities that we've seen when you rely entirely on the police and the prison. So how, what is the evidence behind this? If you could advance, next slide. Um, I sat down years ago with several graduate students to try to understand what were the changes that took place uh, as, as violence same uh, changes that that have already been documented about the rise of police forces, about the expansion of incarceration and private security forces. But we also saw something different. We saw this this uh, growth in community organizations, organizations that were formed to deal with violence, but also just to build stronger uh, neighborhoods and by doing things like providing services for addiction, after school programs, uh, summer jobs programs, uh, redesigning parks and, and investing in the maintenance of parks and, and other public spaces, uh, dealing with homelessness and so forth. Um, we developed a method that I can talk about in more detail to try to get beyond the, just the question of whether places with more of these organizations had, had a bigger or, or smaller decline in violence and to really get at the causal impact of these community organizations. And what we found, this was our kind of uh, uh, conclusive, concluding result. In a typical city in the US, a city with 100,000 people, every 10 additional nonprofit organizations that are focused on building stronger communities, whether it's dealing with violence or dealing with other challenges in the city, uh, led to about a 9% drop in the murder rate and a slightly smaller drop in other forms of crime. This evidence, so uh, next slide, please. This evidence was a national study, um, but there have been more and more experimental evaluations of programs carrying out particular kinds of uh, investments or, or programs in particular neighborhoods that have complemented this work and, and begun to develop this body of evidence telling us that when there are high quality programs that receive the kinds of investments that they need to be sustainable, uh, they have an enormous impact on violence. So these are just a few examples, like the Becoming a Man program in Chicago. Summer jobs are now multiple evaluations just showing the enormous impact of summer jobs programs on arrests for violent crimes. Uh, establishment of business improvement districts, which are nonprofits. Uh, there's lots of evidence that, that uh, uh, these organizations, uh, which have you know different reputations in different places, but they reduce violence, are redesigning abandoned plots of land and abandoned buildings. Uh, this this incredible program in Philadelphia, uh, which took abandoned lots, redesigned them, made them public spaces, and found this very clear, sharp reduction in violence and no displacement. This violence didn't move elsewhere. It was a place that that was violent and was no longer uh, violent after the intervention. So there's just this this growing body of evidence showing that this is not a feel good, you know, uh, uh, um, argument made by activists. There is enormous evidence showing that when you invest in community organizations uh, and residents, people who care about the well-being of their community and their neighbors. Uh, you can have an, a strong impact on violence that comes without the costs of relying on the police and the prison. 
Uh, next slide. So the conclusion is not that we should get rid of law enforcement and turn entirely to residents and community organizations. We have 400 million guns in the US and we have one institution that is well equipped to deal with guns and that is the police. Uh, we have depended on the police to regulate public space and in some cases dominate public space for a very long time. It is a very serious mistake to try to uh, move forward by dismantling police departments or undermining the effectiveness of the police. That is a recipe for rising violence. So the argument I make is that we, we know we have a large body of evidence that residents and community organizations have tremendous capacity to control violence. We've just never thought of them as central actors in the effort to deal with violence. I argue for a shift in focus, whereas we have uh, prioritized investments in the institutions of punishment, the police and the prison system, and made piecemeal investments to these other institutions, these other organizations for the past 50 years. I argue for a shift in focus. We have to start with residents and community organizations and think of them, take them seriously as central actors in the effort to not only reduce violence, but to build stronger neighborhoods. And then think about ways that community residents and organizations can work more effectively uh, and build trust with institutions of the state, most notably police departments. And that combination with community organizations in the forefront and police dealing with the very serious problems of gun violence, uh, but in a secondary role, taking relief from residents and community organizations, I think of as a model that we need to move toward. So I'll stop there and I'll, I'll take uh, any, any questions that folks might have. Great, thank you very much. Uh, that was an excellent presentation and, oh, what is my mic? It off. It's, it, I think it was on. Is this me? Check, check, check. Okay. Uh, sorry, we're first time back in this room in two plus years, so we're still working out some kinks. Uh, that was an excellent presentation. Uh, I do want to let you know that uh, San Francisco isn't necessarily dealing with a, a massive surge in violent crime, but there is a, at least a perception of an increase in property crime. And my working, uh, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, that there's some correlation between your research on uh, violent crime and research uh, and, and causes and effects and, and ways that we can address it, uh, it, that this would presumptively also have a, a positive impact on property crime as well. Um, and, and so that was why uh, we invited you uh, so, uh, just wanted to, uh, you know, I guess, clarify that. Uh, but uh, I'm going to open it up to commissioners for questions. Or uh, commissioners, any questioners, questions, or comments? Does everybody know how to work the thing? <laughs> you hit the little call button on the right. Um, while I wait for the commissioners to formulate their questions, uh, one question I did have for you: You talked about how places. Uh, the effect of, of community on, on violence and, and crime overall. And I was wondering about this causal relationship um, 
you know, it, it, it sounds like crime uh, adversely impacts uh, communities coming together and then also the lack of community has an increase on crime. And it sort of sets up a chicken and egg uh, question about which one is more material if, if we just, it, it sounds like your research shows if we just create more community, we get more crime. Is, is that effectively what, or get less crime, excuse me. Is that effectively what you're saying? So I think you're right that they are reciprocal and uh, it is definitely the case that uh, violence undermines community life and makes it uh, less likely that people will come together. It makes it more likely that people will further retreat from public spaces uh, and not interact. Um, so, you know, there's there's two ways to answer. The, from a researcher's perspective, we have to come up with natural experiments to try to figure out uh, what the causal impact is of a shift like in the prevalence of community organizations on crime. And so we, we use those techniques and we can make confident statements about the causal impact. From a practical perspective, I think you want to, you want to think about this as, as cyclical, uh, as, as a recursive process where places that are more violent um, are going to, uh, that violence is going to further undermine community life uh, and places that don't have an active uh, set of core institutions where people are coming together in uh, public spaces and schools and churches and, and parks um, are going to be more vulnerable to a rising violence to rising violence. So these build on each other. So, um, you know, along those lines, you spoke about or your graph showed uh, some of the impact of, of these uh, community development programs. Um, you know, one that really just grabbed me was just a, a, seems like a very simple one, but just summer jobs. Uh, has seems to have an extraordinary impact on on overall overall crime levels, showing a drop in in forty three percent. What is the? Uh, I, I, I guess I know it's hard to convey verbally, but can you give us a sense of how sensitive crime is to jobs? Like, is it you you create for every hundred jobs or every thousand jobs you get x less crime? So I don't think we're, we're there where you can get that estimate. Um, what we can do is we can get the estimate for the people involved in these programs, but not for the, you would have to, and, and it's actually a major limitation of uh, some of this, this research um, and one that we're working on to do, to do a better job of. But um, what I can say is that the summer jobs uh, studies that have been carried out, that, those are some of the best and most convincing and uh, most consistent findings uh, out there. This this is a uh, an intervention that not only improves the lives of the kids involved, but just changes the atmosphere of neighborhoods when young people are not on their own hanging out uh, on the street without supervision, but rather are part of programs if they're well run. Uh, that can just transform what what a neighborhood looks like, uh, and so you know uh, we don't have the precise answer that that you're looking for. Um, uh, I can speculate and, and give you a number, but I think it wouldn't be 
uh, grounded. Um, uh, we just don't have that evidence. But I do think it is one of those investments that should be on every city's agenda, uh, not only running these programs, but expanding them, incorporating cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the, the things that was done in Chicago, uh, and really making this a key part of the effort to ward off a rise in violence that typically comes in the summer months. So, uh, you know, I, something I'll flag both for you and, and my fellow commissioners is, uh, most new jobs in America come from small businesses. Uh, small businesses are the uh, biggest driver of, of new employment in the country. And I think uh, most people, their first job is, is often working at a small bis business, whether it's a restaurant or an ice cream shop or, or something like that. So this seems like a really important relationship for this commission to focus on in terms of the impact of uh, enabling and creating small businesses and the second and, and third order impacts it can have on, uh, uh, you know, some of these issues that we're dealing with as, as a city and as a country with respect to crime levels. So I, I really appreciate you, uh, the work that you're doing and, and uh, you know, clarifying uh, that relationship uh, because I think it, it, it underscores how the work that we do here on this commission uh, can can really be quite important in ways that we wouldn't ordinarily expect. Um, one other question I had for you. So you spoke about uh, police and uh, that they can have an impact on reducing violence, but there is uh, it, it's maybe not the optimal way to do it because over a period of time, you create. Uh, negative externalities in, in terms of uh, in, increased incarceration and, and sort of breaking up these communities that are, are so important to keeping uh, crime, rates, crime rates low overall. Uh, but, you know, what I, what I heard you talk about on, on the podcast as well was, uh, you know, sometimes when you're, you're, you're looking at a, uh, you need a, a faster response in terms of addressing uh, crime, uh, it's, it's often the case that police is really your best option because some of these uh, community-oriented solutions do take quite some amount of time to deliver results. And I noticed uh, you had a slide, uh, we didn't get a chance to look at it in length, but you talked about how the per capita uh, rates of police officers per city had been rising over time. And I was wondering if there was anything in your research that sort of indicated, you know, what, what, what is the right relationship of number of officers to a population? Um, is, is there something that can give us guidance as to if, if there is, for instance, rising property crime or rising violent crime rates uh, or, or a perception of that? Is there something here that can give us guidance to how much do we turn the knob up on, on police and then how much do we not turn up that knob? And, and is there something you can offer us uh, that we can share with policymakers on how to approach this problem when in a moment where things feel a little more intense? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, so I can, I can point you to uh, the research that's been done on kind of the, the variation in the size of 
police forces per capita. I mean, the interesting thing is that there is not a clear threshold. There's not a clear, uh, they're not like cross-sectional differences that show that places with X number of officers per capita have lower levels. And, and the reason is because that there are, you know, cities add or take away uh, uh, police officers in part because of the scale of the problem. So it's just very difficult to kind of uh, look at the variation across places and say, oh, okay, there's, there's a number we should shoot for. Um, most of what we know about the impact of policing comes from shifts on the margins where changes in particular neighborhoods at particular times, and we see the resulting drop mm -hmm. in violence. Um, so, you know, I, I can I can pass on some some references to kind of allow you to see the variation across cities and, and get a little bit of sense of that. But I think the the crucial point is um, a you know dismantling police departments is going to lead to a rise in violence. Pulling back police officers from public spaces is typically going to lead to a rise in violence. Um, but the crucial point is is what police are encouraged to do and the degree to which they are working effectively with residents, with community organizations, with the city government, that is really the crucial ingredient uh, from my perspective. It's, it's not entirely about how many there are out there. It is much more about how effectively they are able to work with different actors. So if the police department has lost all the trust of the community, it's gonna be very hard for them to be effective regardless of how many police officers they are. Whereas you have examples of programs like problem-oriented policing, where in, in some cases, at least the police are working directly with residents to talk about where the problems are emerging in the community. They have built up trust or, or sufficient amount of trust where they're able to get information uh, from residents and also work with them to develop solutions. So. I guess my point is I would really be focusing on how the police are working with different actors within the community and what they're doing to deal with the problem of violence as opposed to just the, the raw number. Such a great point. Thank you so much. Uh, Commissioner Walker, or Carter, excuse me. <laughs> just want to say that is a um, very, very excellent presentation, especially with all the conversations that's going on right now in the nation. Um, I think I'm curious to what kind of business improvements um, reduced violence, and would you say that blight in the storefronts did that? Um, would that cause a rise in violence in, in communities? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, so the evidence on business improvement districts is mostly there's there's one really good study done in Los Angeles. There's another done in Chicago, and essentially what it showed is that when a business improvement district forms, it tends to lead to this reduction in violence in the area that is covered. Uh, and, and so, you know, part of the explanation, and actually the, the impact is larger if the bid is devoting more of its resources to security. Um, so it's, it's an interesting finding because obviously they, you know, bids do lots of different things and they have uh, some, some, I think, are are uh, seen as uh, hand, working hand in hand with police departments, where, uh, whereas others have a very different focus on, on sanitation and so forth. Um, 
the broader point from that research is that when you have an organization that kind of sees it, it's, its role as looking out over a space and making sure there are no areas, no problem areas within that space, no dangerous areas within that space. And there are people who are, are spending their time out in that space and making sure things go downhill, then violence will probably fall. Uh, whether it's a community organization, a business improvement district, uh, or a police officer, violence will probably fall if that space is, is looked after. Um, on, the, on the second part, it is definitely the case that when a, a community starts to wither away, meaning people move away, people retreat from public space, uh, shops close, close down, uh, and there are fewer people out in public space together, that place becomes vulnerable to rising violence. Um, We lost him. Hopefully he's able to rejoin us. There are employment opportunities as young people enter the labor market. Uh, and so we can show that those consequences of living in a violent environment on employment opportunities early in life and then even later on economic trajectories. Uh, so it's a crucial, the impact on, on the, the um, business environment and the retail environment is a crucial part of how violence undermines uh, uh, communities. Commissioner Walker, do you have any more questions? No, thank you. Okay. Uh, one quick follow-up question before I go to Commissioner Huey. Have, are you aware of any research or have you seen anything around the effect of, uh, you know, since the pandemic, there's been a lot of uh, public dining, um, different utilization of outdoor space. Uh, since we're talking about the built environment, I was just wondering if you've seen any recent research in terms of how uh, these different approaches to land use um, may possibly be affecting crime rates overall I haven't seen any great research there's like there's like a, a year 18 month lag between when things actually happen and yeah. when we get the data where we can actually have yeah. make definitive claims about it um, but no it's a it's a great question I don't think we have great evidence on it right now we're all waiting on pins and needles on that one so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for those arguments to help it uh, Commissioner Huey thank you for humoring me the the question in between Thank you very much, um, Professor Sharkey, for your presentation. It was very, very um, helpful. And um, I just have a few questions. One was, in terms of uh, seeing a reduction in, in crime, what was the time frame on those results? Like, how quickly do people, or I guess how, how long were these studies, and when did people start to see results uh, related to them? Can you clarify which, are you talking about the community organization? Yeah, I think more so with the community organizations. Like, I guess adding additional nonprofits. We may have lost him. Can you hear me now? Yep, we can hear you now. Okay, sorry. I don't know what happened there, but um, 
So I didn't get all the question, but um, what I heard was the time frame for the impact, uh, particularly of, of like the business in, in improvement districts. Um, if, let me know if I if I don't cover everything yes. But um, so those studies particularly focus on the timing. They rely on on using the timing of when a bid uh, uh, is formed to to figure out what the impact was. And so it's saying that the you know when a public space transforms uh, through the formation of a bid. Uh, the finding is that there is an immediate impact on on violence, uh, and and you know it doesn't doesn't take years for that uh, change to emerge. Um, and in fact, all the studies that I talked about, summer jobs programs, uh, the after school programs in Chicago, the um, uh, redesigning abandoned lots in Philadelphia, these are all. Uh, um, you know, some of them take uh, uh, some time to implement, but these are all impacts that you see right away. Uh, the real question is whether they persist for years later into a child's life. I think that's less settled, but the question of whether they have an immediate impact is is uh, clear. There is there is a very strong impact that is felt right away. Great. Um, another question I have is, have you seen, or can you share with us some of maybe the more creative strategies or case studies that you've seen um, in communities to help reduce um, crime? Yeah, um, so there are lots of examples. and Some of them have been evaluated really well. Uh, those are the ones that I kind of uh, have, have, I mentioned as kind of proof of concept. Uh, but there are lots of other organizations. I've, so I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, reading about the Urban Alchemy uh, program there in San Francisco and have been extremely impressed with what they're doing. It's it's part of kind of the broader idea of, of uh, creating an organization that is specifically designed, that sees it as its mission to look out over public space and make sure that there are no problem spots, that young people don't fall through the cracks, uh, that people get the help and, and the services that they need, and that people feel welcomed in their community when they're walking through the street. And when you create those conditions, then violence will fall. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really about who's looking out over public space. I think that's the crucial issue. So Urban Alchemy is, is a program that I think uh, deserves uh, more support and more attention uh, in, in San Francisco. And there, there are programs running like that all over the country. Uh, we have lots of models of programs. The challenge has been that the organizations running these programs are, don't know if they're, they're going to get funding, you know, not just five years from now, but next year. They've never been given kind of the sustained commitment to play this role, to be seen as central actors in the effort to reduce violence. And that's that's a policy choice. You know, we have we have made long term consistent investments in police departments. We have not made similar investments in other kinds of organizations. Uh, so anyway, urban alchemy is, is one example. I could point to dozens of others in different cities. The example that I talk about in my book, I actually went out to Australia and and uh, walked this, the streets of Perth with a group that is just doing extraordinary work there. Um, so this work is going on all over the place. It's just a matter of uh, where they are getting the investments that they need to be most effective. Great. 
And um, how would you suggest communities um, and police departments start to have this conversation? Well, you know, I, I think in a lot of places they're trying to have these conversations um, and it's really, it depends on the history of the place. It depends on uh, whether residents are willing to work with, with law enforcement. And there's some communities where that's just, uh, there has built up such distrust that it's really hard to begin to have those conversations. Um, you know, there are people like David Kennedy is a criminologist who has been working directly with police departments for a long time. And he has developed this approach that begins with kind of starting with a reckoning, starting with a discussion about the harm that has gone on over time, and trying to get on the same page in terms of uh, acknowledging uh, how residents uh, feel that they have been treated by law enforcement as a starting point. Um, so that's one approach beginning just with, with that reckoning and poli the police department has to be on board in order to make that work. Um, but secondly, there are a whole a bunch of programs uh, where law enforcement kind of takes a position that their goal is to begin to build trust and they have to take that seriously and they have to uh, make a commitment to it. And so a lot of times that means coming together with community residents try to understand what's what is generating the problems in the neighborhood beyond crime. So there's a program in, in New York that I've written about called Neighborhood Stat, where residents, tenants, other stakeholders, uh, uh, city uh, representatives of city agencies all come together and look at the same data on what's going on in the neighborhood. Uh, Liz Glazer uh, dreamed this up uh, and uh, working with New York City government. And I went to those meetings and I just thought as the starting point for kind of this, the kind of discussion that would lead to community groups working together with law enforcement, working together with the city to solve local problems. So again, there are models out there, um, but I think this is kind of a burgeoning, a growing uh, area where people are trying to figure out uh, how best to start these conversations. All right. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Commissioner Ortiz, Cartagena. Thank you, Professor Sharkey, for this presentation. So I, I want to just summarize. So all your research, the data shows that if you invest in community organizations and small business, we get a decrease in violent crime. Is that correct? Yep, that's accurate. So and I thank you for that. Why? Why is because, you know, with city agencies, um, I, I wear multiple hats. You know, I, I lead a lot of community benefit organizations in my neighborhood in the Mission District, primarily Latina and Latino population. Um, and I grew up in the 80s and 90s with the violence. You know, I've done prison time. So I, I understand the, the just the toll it takes on community, family and your mental health. Right. Like I joke around now because you just see some gruesome stuff growing up. What I want to get at is, so when we are in conversations with the city, you have some data showing about 10 nonprofits in, um, results in 9% in violent crime. Is there a dollar amount? If I could go to the city and be like, look, if you invest this dollar amount, this is the exact reduction in violent crime and property crime that will result. Do you have data like that? Or is there studies that indicate that? Definitely, definitely. And I could get you, 
you know, so for any follow-up questions, just send, shoot me an email, psharkey at princeton.edu, because I can get you those numbers. Um, and, uh, and, and the numbers are overwhelming uh, in the sense that the actual cost to the city of every murder is upwards of a million dollars. Um, and that my, my dog is really upset with me here. I'm sorry about this background noise. Um, but the, so the, to answer your question, the costs to the city are just staggering when you don't deal with this problem. And those are just the direct costs of like the, the services that you have to provide to people going through the system. The social costs, you know, which you started to mention in your question, add an entirely different layer. Um, so if you want to translate this into dollars, it is just an overwhelmingly strong argument to make these kinds of investments. I'm, I'm still listening. I'm going to get rid of my dog, but I'm still listening. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Commissioner, if you're, if you're done. Okay. Um, you know, before we go to public comment, I'll, I'll, I'll just say, I don't think any of us, when we were appointed to the Small Business Commission, thought or considered that there would be such a strong nexus between public safety. But I think what Professor Sharkey, uh, and he'll never stop being funny saying that, um, <laughs> what Professor Sharkey is illustrating uh, for all of us is we really do have a, not just a, a role to play, a, a critical and important role to play in public safety for cities. And I think that that is a, a responsibility that we should not shy away from, uh, because I think, to Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena's point, when we advocate for small businesses, when we advocate for more jobs, when we advocate for more community organizations like CART, who we've received a presentation from, like Urban Alchemy, we are making a material difference in how our city feels, how it looks, how it operates, and all of this uh, is self-reinforcing. So, you know, uh, we were talking earlier about the, the correlation between community and crime. When we increase community, we decrease crime. When we decrease crime, we make the city a more pleasant place to visit, which increases business, which increases community, which decreases crime. We've got to start the flywheel spinning on um, positive reinforcement. And I think that I, I just can't thank uh, Professor enough for coming in. Uh, I'm sorry, Vice President Sassoonis, I didn't see that oh. you. Uh, I, I was going to ask if we were going to have a commissioner discussion or if the only times for comments were before public comment. We can absolutely have a, a commissioner uh, okay. a conversation. I'll, I'll save my comments then. Because oh, it's less like direct. Well, I guess. If, yeah, now's the okay. time, please. If, if Professor Sharkey is interested in uh, talking in a specific San Francisco context, I'd like to bring it there. Um, and I'd like to just state my understanding, police enforce laws and they enforce property relations. So we can't also talk about policing in the abstract outside of what they're tasked to enforce. Um, even in a city like ours that has a lot of funds um, and uh, charitable causes and you know nonprofit housing that engages in in um, this type of investment work, all sorts of uh, directions outside of the public <clears throat> realm. 
I've also seen how um, those um, other forces outside of police, even if they could be well-intentioned, systemic forces also produce certain types of policing and violence to communities um, if they're not um, understanding the ecosystem in which they're entering. I mean, I've seen and read grant language for nonprofit um, community redevelopment that literally states, we need to get rid of this business here, you know, in the grant language. And usually the business that it's identifying saying we need to redevelop this is a community serving business owned by a community member that may be not, you know, that may not have the full uh, resources to get to the level in which they could better be serving their community. So I just like to flag that I think um, in addition to understanding where we're putting our, where we're potentially redirecting funding from policing to nonprofits, that has to be a very mindful process as well. Um, in addition to which laws are on our books that the police are responding to. Um, we saw um, actually as much as we did see um, an increase in use of public realm for uh, small business and um, shared spaces, outdoor dining, there was a very stark double standard during the course of the pandemic about whose public space it was and which type of public space was legal. Um, we saw an anti-loitering code that was on the books from the, eras of, the era of gang injunctions used as a precedent for the police to um, shut down and put curfews on corner stores at the height of the pandemic um, when those were much needed resources to communities. Whereas now you're seeing um, you know, bigger stores that were under the square footage um, that you know, that code didn't apply to or restaurants were having an expansion of off-sale alcohol, of outdoor dining, whereas you know, common areas that don't have that full facility to like legalize community hanging out were actually criminalized. So there, there was a stark um, double standard in, in whose you, you know, outdoor space was, was um, you know, supported during the course of this pandemic. So I just like to say that um, I think our realm is looking at those old codes that intersect with policing and small business and really understanding how we can reform those so that the police are not preemptively, you know, going after a small business um, and the communities surrounding them, but proactively maybe letting them know um, we're here if you need anything, um, as opposed to just showing up when um, they're tasked with, you know, enforcing a code um, that, that um, may be resulting in um, consequences that are not intended. So that was just my question. And, um, you know, prof Professor, that, that is specific San Francisco context, but we did see how, as well as intention as police may be, if they're tasked with responding to something that's on the books, that's their duty. And so I think our duty is to make sure that we um, have equitable laws that will be um, the basis for that enforcement. Yeah, that, I, I mean, that, that resonates. I think, uh, you know, putting it for uh, generally, I think policing should be responsive to the community uh, and, and it, it, the community has to be forefront in, in making clear uh, kind of what, what behaviors 
are are um, uh, kind of accepted within the community. Uh, what codes are are you know uh, prioritized within a, a community? What businesses they want to serve the community, and the police should be responding to to uh, the, the residents and, and local organizations uh, instead of vice versa. Uh, and so there, there are examples of what this looks like in practice that are not relevant to your particular uh, case there. But I think there are there was a, 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 um, a, a period and initiative in Brooklyn that I think had a misnomer, but it was called five days without cops. It wasn't five days without cops. It was five days where residents called on all the organizations within the community to be out in public space and take a central role in looking out over making sure that uh, uh, kids were taken care of, people got what they needed, uh, they were supporting local businesses, with, and the police were in the background. The police were asked to be there in case there was an incident where they were needed. They were really seen as kind of on the periphery. Uh, available if needed in the way that residents wanted them to be available. Uh, and this was a, a program that was uh, supported and partially organized by a, a captain of the 73rd precinct. Um, this, you know, police don't object to, to or at least in, in my experience, most police officers and leadership in law enforcement don't object to the idea uh, that other organizations can play a bigger role, that residents should play a central role in working with the police. Um, it just hasn't, we just haven't invested in those organizations and the, res and the uh, community residents, and, and we've re instead relied on the police to play to be that dominant actor. So it doesn't respond uh, exactly to your question, but I think that's, that's probably a discussion that all of you uh, know much more about than I do. Well, Professor, you uh, promised us 20 minutes, and we've, we've kept you for an hour. Uh, so I think uh, at this point we'll check to see if there's public comment. Um, <clears throat> we have no public commenters in person, but we have to check online now for callers. Okay. SFGovTV, are there any? There's one caller in the queue. Public commenter, please proceed. Well, my name is Anne Cervantes. Uh, thank you, Professor Sharpie, for the information. The great thing, I'm an, a business owner, actually almost a legacy business. Um, I'm an architect here in San Francisco. But what I want to comment on is to the rest of the commission, is that you have a number of nonprofit organizations that deal with this issue. And it's unfortunate that they haven't been properly funded because you don't need much of a jumpstart to see results. And such organizations like Homey, because there are people within the community, whether they be supervisors, aides, they have a long history of working with gang violence in the city. So I just wanted to comment on that. But I also wanted to say is that my background is somewhat we have to look at social issues in architecture and planning and one of the ones persons that i've read in college when i was in grad school was oscar newman's defensible space and for property owners and business owners you know that the more activity you have in front of your space the less crime you're going to have 
So I always look to Oscar Newman in designing in San Francisco to provide defensible space. Um, anyway, I wanted to comment on that. I, call, I was here for something else, but I found your, your lecture very uh, interesting. Thank you for your comments. Thank you, Thank Anne. you for that. Thanks. Just a, a 10 second response. I think uh, Anne is exactly right. And there's there's a growing body of evidence to, to support that line of thinking, both in terms of uh, one of the studies that I mentioned about redesigning spaces so that they're more welcoming for, for people is one example. Another that just came out uh, in New York um, where they, they improved street lighting uh, around public housing developments uh, and, and randomized where they did it. And again, found this very strong reduction in nighttime felonies uh, taking place around the areas where street lighting was improved. So there's lots of evidence behind the, the old uh, Oscar Newman uh, classic on defensible space. Um, it's real, it's real. You have to create public spaces that are welcoming and that bring people together. Well, uh, Professor, uh, this has really been incredibly illuminating, and uh, we are just very deeply appreciative uh, for you spending your time with us. And I think uh, you've given us all a lot to, to, to think about uh, and also offered us pathways to be productive uh, participants in, in this conversation and, and help uh, our city grow and, and help the country grow. So. Your work is, is tremendously important. It's, it's been an honor and a privilege to have you here today, and, and thank you for coming and spending some time with us. Well, thank all of you. Thanks for, thanks for listening. It's rare. It's rare to have people who make decisions listen, so I, I really appreciate it, and it's been good talking with you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, next item, please. Item three, welcome Tiffany Carter to the Small Business Commission. This is a discussion item. So, um, it's been a while since we've had a new commissioner, and uh, so, uh, Commissioner Carter, uh, I'd, I'd first like to say, uh, how lucky are you that your first meeting is actually in person? <laughs> um, not everybody has had that privilege. Uh, Second, uh, I'd like to say I am extremely excited to have you on this commission. I think you're going to be um, an excellent addition. Uh, before we turn it over to the other commissioners, though, I'd, I'd like to give you the opportunity to say a couple words. No pressure, but if you have something you'd like to say, the, the floor is yours. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. I feel very honored, you know, at, as a San Francisco native and um, kid growing up in Bayview, this is, this is great. Um, and I look forward to serving um, the small business community of San Francisco and, and hopefully adding a lot of um, value. <laughs> so thank you guys. Great. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that you will do so. You already are doing so. <laughs> uh, commissioners, did you want to... Uh, uh, Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Commissioner Carter, I just want to welcome you. Um, haven't met you until today, but we run in the same circles, and so I'm super stoked. The more natives we get on this commission, the better, I say. So, <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Commissioner Huey. 
Yes, I just wanted to say welcome, and it's really strange to be sitting so close to you not on Zoom, but I'm really excited to have you on this commission, and I can't wait to get to know you and your work, so thank you so much for, for serving with us and wanting to do this. Commissioner Dickinson. Welcome, Commissioner Carter. I'm so happy that you're here. It's This is going to be really good. I'm excited because you have a really strong voice in the community. And especially in Bayview, I believe that um, it's, it's going to be an opportunity for you to really give expression to your passions. And I've, I've heard and seen and we've, we've shared some, some time together. And I'm, I, uh, I'm excited because I, I, I love the passion that you have for your community. It's real. Um, and I have gleaned from you personally in, in watching you advocate for um, the small businesses, African-American business ownership, and, and you as well being a small business owner. Her food is good. So when you get a chance, taste her food. Um, but welcome. And, I, and I'm excited to partner uh, with you and with the rest of this commission together as a team. So welcome. Vice President Zazunas. Yes, I'd just like to echo everybody's congrats. Um, I'm really elated that you're here because we, we need more you know, folks who are plugged into community organizations, to merchant and business organizations in their community, um, especially uh, you know, communities where the city is, is trying to put resources into and maybe not always doing it correctly. So um, I think it's really, really prime that you're here. Um, I know you're hustling. I know you've got a lot going on with your business right now. So, um, like I've told you before, I think, you know, use this um, platform as something to elevate the work that you're already doing in community and in your business. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, Commissioner, I, I will just close by saying how honored we all are to have you here. Um, it's really incredible when uh, somebody that has a job takes time away from their work and their job to do public service for the city. And, and this is a volunteer role. And it's uh, uh, even in, in Zoom times, it took up a lot of time. But now we got to uh, hustle to get down here and, and park or, or ride our bikes or what have you and uh, get up here to the, the meeting. So I appreciate you making that commitment back to the city to help the city be better. Um, and uh, I'm very grateful uh, that you've joined us. And um, hopefully someday we can fill that other missing seat. Uh, we've got one more to go. Uh, so with that, uh, is there any public commenters on the line? There aren't any public callers online, but we have one in person. Janet oh, Carlo with San Francisco Council of District Merchants and the Glen Park Merchants Association. If you, if you could keep, hey Janet, if you could keep your back. You're welcome. You have the floor. Please proceed. Yeah, I know. It's a thing we got to do. It's okay. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure. Um, uh, good morning or good afternoon, commissioners. And uh, I just want to take this opportunity on behalf of the San Francisco Council of District Merchants to uh, welcome Commissioner Carter to the commission and to uh, express our appreciation for the work of the commission and Director Tang and uh, Carrie Burnback. 
Um, we are uh, deeply appreciative of uh, your advocacy for uh, the small uh, businesses of San Francisco and the commercial corridors that we represent. And, um, and I just wanted to introduce myself to the commission. Uh, I have recently been appointed the chair of our um, legislative committee, so I've had the good fortune to uh, be working very closely with um, Director Tang and um, Ms. Bernbach, and I uh, um, really look forward to a, a, a um, productive uh, relationship between our organizations. So thank you very much. Can I also just say congrats on all the female appointees now that are leading the SFCDMA? I know. <laughs> we actually have one caller. Um, on the line. Okay. Caller, please proceed. Okay. This is why I call public comment. It's Ann Cervantes. I'm a business owner and I'm helping to organize uh, and let some of the family businesses that own property in the city how to comply with the ABA. Hey, Ann, Ann, I'm so sorry. Um, the public comment has to be on the agenda item. Uh, so the agenda item right now is we are welcoming Commissioner Carter. If, oh, I'm sorry. If you would like to uh, welcome Commissioner Carter. Congratulations, Car Commissioner Carter. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I was out of turn. I yeah. thought it was coming at the beginning, but um, my apologies. No problem, no problem. Uh, is there any other public commenters? Okay. Uh, seeing none, public comment is closed. Uh, Commissioner Carter, we're delighted to have you for the fifth time. Uh, and uh, next item, please. Item four, resolution making findings to allow teleconference meetings under California Government Code Section 54953E. This is a discussion and action item. Commissioner, and are there any comments or questions on allowing teleconference meetings? Is there any public comment on allowing teleconference meetings? There is not. Okay, seeing none, public comment is closed. Are there any further questions? Okay. Commissioner, I uh, move that we make this resolution. Is there a second? I'll second. Oh. Uh, seconded by Commissioner Dickerson. Motion by President Laguana, seconded by Commissioner Dickerson. Looks like we just had a hand raised. Should we? just advise to go to public, have them go to public comment at the end of the meeting? Uh, I think you can, should just go ahead and, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, tell them to go to item six if they want to speak. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you can go, well, we, it, yes, when we get there, they can do that. Uh, but we should take a vote on the motion. Oh, oh yeah. I. Sorry. Deputy City Attorney John Gibner, if the if the commenter is seeking to make comment on this item, on item four, uh, you should take that comment before the before yeah. the vote. Oh, um, not, okay. It's not clear whether that's the purpose of the race. I thought hand. I called for public comment and there was none. Was I wrong? No, you were right. I think they might have raised their hand a little late. Maybe we oh, should unmute If they them raise their hand, then, then then by all means, please. Okay. Let's um, let's unmute our, our commenter. They raised it after public comment was closed. Oh, I see. I was a little too hasty. I apologize. 
Thank you. Just Stephen Cornell from the Book District Merchants and the Council. Just to comment on the broadcast, I can hear everything's quite clear when all the commissioners speak, but when you had the uh, professor speak and the other public commenter, it's very difficult to hear over this uh, and quite annoying just for the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, I, I struggled to hear the uh, public commenter as well, uh, just so you know. Uh, but uh, we, we unfortunately don't have any input into the audio system here. Uh, okay, so uh, a motion's on the table. Should I'll we call the roll. Thank you. Commissioner Carter. I approve. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, Commissioner Dickerson. Yes. Commissioner Huey. Yes. President Laguana. Yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Yes. Vice President Zuzunas. Yes. Oh, yeah, that was your favorite. Motion passes unanimously. Okay, next item, please. <laughs> item five approval of draft <laughs> meeting minutes. This is an action item. Commissioners, are there any comments or questions on the minutes? Seeing none, we'll open it up for public comment. Is there anyone present for public comment on item number five, approval of draft meeting minutes? Uh, we have no public commenters present, and we have none on the line. Great. I'll pause for a second. <laughs> Seeing none, public comment is closed. Uh, Commissioners, in the interest of time, I will make another motion that we approve the draft meeting minutes. I second. Moved by President Laquana. I feel like it's Jeopardy. <laughs> we can hit the button first. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena, I'll read the roll. Commissioner okay. Carter. Yes, approved. That's a yes. Commissioner Dickerson. Yes. Yes. Commissioner Huey. Yes. Yes. President Laguana. Yes. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena? Yes. And Vice President Zazunas? Yes. Uh, motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Uh, next item. Item six, general public comment. This is a discussion item. It allows members of the public to comment generally on matters that are within the Small Business Commission's jurisdiction, but not on today's calendar, and suggest new agenda items for the Commission's future consideration. Thank you. Are there any members of the public who would like to make comments on items not on the agenda? So if you called earlier and were making a comment on an item that was not on the agenda, this would be the perfect time to make that comment. Yes, we have one caller on the line. Perfect. Um, so uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and hear from that commenter. Caller, please proceed. Yes, Commissioner Sharkey, thank you. Um, I just wanted to comment um, as a small business owner on the ABA applications. And if you have jurisdiction over the grants that are coming, that you include the small architects, just not past members, because as a business owner, I can do this stuff. So just to let you know um, is to make sure that that they extend to uh, small architecture firms in the city. And a comment. 
These are on the ABE applications. Okay. Accessible I, business entrance. Okay. Thank you. Is there any other pub public commenters on the line? We have no other commenters on the line. Okay, seeing none, public comment is closed. Uh, next item, please. Item seven, director's report, presentation and discussion item. This is an update and report on the Office of Small Business and the Small Business Assistance Center, department programs, policy and legislative matters, announcements from the mayor, and announcements regarding small business activities. All right, through the chair, thank you and good evening, commissioners. Really nice to see you all in person. And again, uh, congratulations to Commissioner Carter. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, I think that uh, the majority of the work that I have experienced with all of you takes place outside of this room. And so I know that you all have to devote so much time in addition to your business uh, to be here. So thank you so much, uh, Commissioner Carter. And of course, if any of you wanna try her food, just walk a couple blocks down the street to the La Casina Municipal Market and you can go and get a really delicious po'boy. So, um, welcome. Um, so in terms of today's updates, I uh, just wanted to share a couple of things in terms of uh, legislation and policy items that we had been tracking. Um, I know that uh, we had talked about the street vendor legislation. As a reminder, this pertains to um, the sale of goods. Uh, so not food, but uh, goods on the street and um, that legislation has passed and we will be tracking uh, how that program will be working operationally, being in touch with public works, making sure that um, the comments that you all provided and suggestions for how to uh, manage that program, making sure it's uh, friendly to our small business owners as well as culturally uh, and linguistically uh, appropriate uh, that all those are taken into consideration. Uh, secondly, the family-friendly workplace ordinance. I know that uh, this commission had discussed a number of recommendations, sent those on to the sponsor. Uh, that legislation passed uh, only with one amendment that was recommended by this commission, which had to do with uh, providing technical assistance uh, to our communities about uh, that ordinance. So um, unfortunately, the other amendments were not adopted. But uh, definitely want to encourage the commissioners to uh, let us know if you're hearing about anything in the community about the impacts of the ordinance so that we could share that back with uh, the, the Board of Supervisors. Um, in terms of graffiti abatement, this commission also heard an item about uh, the graffiti abatement ordinance and the fines and fees being reinstated. And there were also a number of recommendations that came out of this commission that unfortunately were not taken in the legislation uh, that has not yet passed at the board. Um, however, we are trying to work with uh, um, uh, on further amendments uh, that may come in the future because we do uh, understand how important it is that we take this opportunity to reform the program so there's a less, uh, less of a burden for small business owners. And then in terms of shared spaces, um, just wanted to share that uh, at the end of this month, there will be a, a presentation about the shared spaces program, um, an update on that. And uh, they will also be discussing how the application for the equity grant program has been, uh, the deadline has been extended to the end of April. And so uh, one of the things that uh, we wanna focus on is outreach to seven key neighborhoods. That includes the mission, Portola, Bayview, Soma, 
Chinatown Tenderloin and Excelsior. And so just want to uh, seek um, assistance from the commissioners to just uh, outreach about the equity grant uh, program that again is available online uh, right now with the application. Um, and then in terms of the rent relief program, just a reminder that the applications are still also open for that program for small business owners that have been um, have struggling throughout this pandemic in terms of uh, rent payments. Um, as of the end of February, there had already been uh, well over 250 applications. And so uh, we definitely anticipate that OEWD will be uh, far exceeding the, I mean, the demand is far exceeding the number of grants that would be able to be sure. awarded for that. Um, and then I think that what is very uh, pertinent to, in particular to today's uh, presentation from Professor Sharkey, is that on Tuesday there was legislation introduced by Supervisors Marr and Walton, and this was this is an ordinance that would um, require the police department and all of the different stations to come up with community policing plans, and so they would have to detail and outline um, how is it that they want to incorporate community input. Um, uh, thinking about foot and bike patrol deployment, um, and then also require that these community uh, policing plans would be posted, uh, available to the public, and updated each year. So certainly I think it's a great opportunity uh, in light of our interest in public safety issues and, and the intersection between small businesses and our merchant corridors uh, to be involved uh, either in that legislation or to, um, uh, once it's adopted, uh, just to see how that might help improve um, our, our community interactions on that front. Um, and then lastly, I just wanted to um, uh, again uh, acknowledge something that uh, I know our president uh, stated at the beginning of this meeting, which is uh, the unfortunate passing of Commissioner, former Commissioner Kathleen Dooley, uh, who had served on this commission since uh, 2009 and uh, only left her seat at the end of last year. Um, had been uh, a florist and owner of Columbine Design Floral Company. Uh, she had a shop on Grant Avenue for 25 years. She was a co-founder of North Beach Merchants Association and North Beach Business Association and led countless efforts uh, through her roles there. Um, personally worked uh, quite a bit with her on accessibility issues for facing small businesses, uh, collaborated with her um, during that time. Um, I know that she pretty much served the entire time that uh, former uh, director Regina Dickendrizi was here, so we have shared the news with her as well. Um, but just wanted to acknowledge her extensive involvement and contributions on this commission. I know that many of you worked with her for a very long time, and uh, the news of her passing today was very uh, sad to hear. So just wanted to uh, acknowledge that and uh, also, of course, uh, give commissioners an opportunity to speak about that as well. So uh, with that, I conclude my director's report. Thank you, director. I'll say something. Sure. Commissioners, uh, Vice President Zunas. Thank you. C yeah, Commissioner Dooley was a firecracker. She, <laughs> she set it straight and I think set a strong precedent for me as also a board appointee. Um, so I, I looked up to her a lot, um, and I really re respected her neighborhood focus because that really emulated the kind of top down or bottom, bottom up, you know, po uh, policy intent that she, she, you know, led with, um, 
hearing what was happening on the ground and, and trying to use her position to translate that into good um, working policy and communication strategies to merchants um, in North Beach. So um, may her memory be eternal. Thank you. Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. Yeah, Commissioner Zuli was definitely a mentor when I came on board. Um, she showed me the ropes. She gave everybody heck every time she could. Um, she loved North Beach. North Beach was her. Like, I would always see her out and about in North Beach, and she just invited you, and she defended, and she, like, just, she was about her neighborhood, about her community, and we will always remember you, Commissioner Zuli. Rest in power. Thank you. When I first joined the commission in 2019, I was sitting in the seat that Director Tang is now sitting in. Uh, Commissioner Dooley was to my immediate left in the seat that Commissioner Dickerson is now in. Uh, like most of you, I was intimidated and, and nervous. You walk into this big room and you're on microphones and there's cameras everywhere. And uh, I forget what our, our, one of our very first agenda items uh, and I'm like, oh God, what, you know, what is this stuff and how much trouble am I going to get in? She leans over to me and she says, what is this bullshit? <laughs> uh, to say she was a firecracker is really, uh, I think, underplaying it. Uh, it's doing a disservice to firecrackers, I'd, I'd say that. Uh, Commissioner Dooley is in my mind at least, the embodiment of, of public service. She spent over a decade on this board as a volunteer while running her business, while advocating for her community. And uh, was very aggressive and uh, did not take any shit from anyone uh, and, and told it like it was. I knew I was treading on dangerous territory if I started to talk, and I would see her vigorously shaking her head while I was talking. <laughs> uh, and there was uh, several times where I, I self-edited uh, because uh, that vigorous head shaking really uh, scared me. Uh, I, was, I was worried. Uh, former Secretary Dominica Donovan and I had, and I, I'm grateful I had the opportunity to, to tell Commissioner Dooley this in person at, at our last meeting, but we, we had a recurring bit of fan fiction about Commissioner Dooley. We, we called her Agent Dooley, uh, and, uh, you know, because she, she, she had such a, a debonair uh, air about her, uh, and, uh, you know, she'd be, when we switched to Zoom, she'd be lounging on her couch with the cats and the dogs walking around and uh, a cocktail uh, you could see was just out of frame <laughs> and we had this picture of her um, you know running a, a, a like a spy operation you know when she wasn't on the commission just ordering cocktails like 007 or something and then ordering hits on the bad guys uh, and uh, you know, she, she really had an impressive ability to um, impact and, and change everyone around her. And, you know, I have to say, uh, when I joined the commission, she was really quite skeptical of me 
And the first time I uh, ran for, for chair of this commission, I, I did not earn her vote. Uh, and on a, on a personal level, um, I have to say that, that that's something that I felt deeply very proud of was the second time I ran for president, I did earn her vote. And that actually meant an awful lot to me because I knew how hard it was to earn her respect and her friendship and that she was not liberal uh, or casual uh, with how she respected people or who she re respected. She's left behind an enormous community of friends. Uh, she was a, a very good friend to Supervisor Peskin. I believe she lived right next door to him and worked very closely with his office over the years to make a lot of big changes to the city. She was an important partner to the small business community. She uh, was the embodiment of a small business commissioner and just having this very small flower shop uh, from which she exerted all, all of this uh, influence on, on how the city moved forward. And she was very thoughtful and, and deliberate and I think a, a, uh, uh, really a, a role model for all of us to look up to on, on how we can push forward, how we can navigate, how we don't have to be shy about having an opinion uh, which it can be very intimidating having an opinion when there's cameras, when there's, you know, even if it's just a couple of people in the room. And, and so she really, uh, I think, sh she showed me that. I know she showed many of you that, and, and that was the kind of mentorship she was for me. Uh, and I think uh, I only have one cocktail a week, um, but I think tonight, I'm, or this week, I may have two. Uh, and tonight I, I, I might have a glass in, in honor of Agent Dooley. And everything she contributed, contributed to the city, and I'm, I'm grateful for the time that she put into this commission, and I'm sorry to hear about her passing, but um, I mean, just one little data point, right? Like, I, so she broke her leg, and I said, Kathleen, how, what happened? How did you break your leg? She said, well, this asshole Uber driver came up and said something rude, and I stepped off the curb to give him a piece of my mind, and I slipped. <laughs> and I thought, that's so on brand for you. <laughs> so, uh, Commissioner Dooley, I, I really hope there is some kind of afterlife, because I know that you will be setting everything straight up there uh, and it'll all be ordered and set right uh, when it's my turn to get there. So, uh, Commissioner Dooley, thank you for everything you've given this commission and everything you've given this city. Is there any, uh, anybody online for public comment? There is not. Being none, public comment is closed. Next item, please. Uh, item eight, commissioner comments and questions and new business. This is a discussion item. It allows the president, vice president, and commissioners to report on recent small business activities, make announcements, and make inquiries of staff. Allows commissioners to introduce new agenda items for future consideration by the commission. 
Commissioners, is there any uh, new items that you would like to report out? Commissioner Ortiz Cartagena. I found out about um, Commissioner Dooley's passing earlier today, so I didn't know, but over the weekend, we also lost somebody in the mission, Mitch Salazar. He was a community activist, small business owner, and I also want to remember him at this commission hearing. Um, definitely a mission OG, definitely an embodiment of what a missionero is, so rest in peace, Mitch. Thank you. Commissioner Huey. Um, this is a very sad meeting. It's sad and joyful. We have a new commissioner as well. Um, so I still am still kind of processing for, um, for Commissioner Dooley. So, um, but I would like to say that she actually really liked me from the beginning, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have that effect on people, and I do not. <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah. I teed that up for you, didn't I? Like you, you were did. just waiting. I was. <laughs> well, um, you know, I guess I'll just share what I did this week. I guess uh, this week I was really fortunate to be invited to some merchant walks with the SFCDMA. I got to um, spend some time in Lower Haight, and, which is a beautiful neighborhood that I obviously go to to get certain things done and to run errands and things like that and, um, and to eat in. But I rarely, I guess, get the opportunity to actually just walk around and spend time in a community for a couple hours. I ended up spending, I think, four, four hours there, which was quite some time. And um, I really encourage everybody to, to try it, like in different neighborhoods in the city. So I was really um, grateful that the community leaders there took us on the, our tour, um, Supervisor Preston and his aides, um, Preston, as well as Melissa, came to um, that one, as well as one in the inner sunset. So I basically spent my week last week walking around different neighborhoods. Um, and it was great. Um, you know, it makes me really proud to be part of a neighborhood, part of a couple of neighborhoods, if not a few. And, um, you know, I'm really excited about how San Francisco is going to create more community. And I think the presentation today really speaks to the need of that. Um, the other piece that I was going to share was that um, there are a lot of initiatives to activate spaces, and I'm really excited to see more things happening in terms of um, art walks and culture kind of like experiences and things like that coming back. Um, the other piece that I was going to talk about was also just that the survey is coming along. Um, we'll have to kind of talk more about that, I think, in, um, in the coming weeks. But we're getting the timeline together. We're getting kind of the shape and look of, of things together. And so Professor Chaudhry is, is excited to do this the second time. We're really focusing on um, some of the pertinent issues of the commission right now in terms of how to grow community as well as uh, 
you know, public safety, sounds like those are going hand in hand, and also equity as a, as a main, you know, line through the survey this time. And I think a, an interesting piece will be that she wants to collect more qualitative data in the form of um, interviews, so mm. possibly like Zoom interviews with key kind of community um, merchants. So I think at that time, you know, that would be a great time for us to kind of reflect on who, who we want reflected in those and captured. And that'll be nice for our kind of small business community to see how people are doing. Um, when, when you're ready to have that conversation, we should uh, schedule it as, as an agenda item so that, um, uh, you know, the, co the commission can participate in that conversation. Yes, yeah. I think that would be great. Great, just let me know or let us know. Perfect. Um, and, oh, there is, uh, specifically on the rent relief grant, there's going to be a meeting. I didn't write down the, the day. It's coming up um, in Chinatown in language. It, it'll probably be in Cantonese um, at Victory Hall. And, and so I think trying to get as many people there to just learn more about it. And I think the presenters will also be able to, you know, just in general be a resource for many of the small business owners. So um, those are the key things that I've been up to, but um, yeah, Great. feels very inappropriate to talk about. No, <laughs> no, look, I mean, life goes on and, and we got to keep, you know, the, the yeah, the, we got to keep moving and, and got to keep the ball going. And, and Commissioner Dooley, I'm sh sh there's no doubt in my mind, would not expect or want otherwise. So mm -hmm. um, I think uh, that's great. Um, you know, I was hanging out with former Commissioner Yakutiel today, mm -hmm. um, and your list reminded me of his list, which I felt like he was reading off a, a series of calendar entries. And I was like, my God, I like in that same space of time, I managed to walk my dog. And, you know, that's really great <laughs> that you were getting all that done. Um, Commissioner Carter. I wanted to give a, um, as co-founder of SF Black Wall Street, we have our um, Black Millionaire Development Program, which will be, um, we have our first graduation of, of 12 women entrepreneurs. That'll mm. be happening in the next two weeks. And then also we'll be welcoming a new um, cohort of, of men in re-entry. Um, so I would love support from, from the small business um, department and also the commission and if anyone wants to join in on the graduation that'll be coming up in the next two weeks um we would love to to have any of you guys and um yeah i think this is great especially in correlation with with, with the presentation and how small business and and um, impacts violence in in these communities where a lot of the um, participants come from I'd be honored to attend. I'm sure many of the other commissioners would as well. So if you could uh, share the um, the time and the date of the event with Director Tang, and she can facilitate getting that information out to the rest I of us. I sure will. Thank you. Great. Um, Commissioner Huey again? <laughs> it's, it's me again. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. When you, when you mentioned um, my last week, I forgot about a couple other things that I did that I wanted to share. <laughs> Um, one was that um, the seed network from um, Cultivate Labs and Soma Filipinas, they just finished, um, uh, I guess, their decisions on their grants that they were able to offer 
um, I think two businesses. And again, I'm kind of, I don't have those names with me right now, but um, I was able to read, I was honored to read many of the grant applications and I just wanted to commend their organization for finding such diverse businesses to apply for their grant and to have such a streamlined organized granting program. I thought it was a wonderful model that many of our communities could really um, use and their organization has been so transparent and um, I know Commissioner Vice President Zuzunas um, knows this as well, like how wonderful they've been in terms of how to grow community and how to really support their small businesses. So I'll hopefully share more next time once I get my act together. Um, I hope they get more, like to do another round. Yeah, I think so. They were able to get, I think they had 24,000 from Wells Fargo maybe to grant out. And so this was uh, the first, first round, I believe. And they had all different people kind of reading uh, the grants and things like that too. Um, so hopefully they'll be able to do it again because they seem to have it well run. Um, the other thing that I got to do was also tour the Tenderloin Linkage Center on Market and um, that's through like my work on RAMS and so you know that would be something that I would recommend too like for anybody who, I mean, you can't just go and tour, I suppose, but like, you know, to have the opportunity to kind of see what the city is doing right now in its emergency efforts to make sure people have food and a place to shower and to take, and to really get them um, hooked up with com community resources and uh, medical care as well. So, so many things happening there. They've gotten it all together really quickly. And I think there's a lot of room for growth and opportunity. I think most recently, they just put in like a phone charger because some you know people kind of recognize the need for that. So I think in terms of community input, it sounds like they're they're looking for it because something like that will need to happen in a more permanent way. And I think having some community input as to how that looks downtown will really shape what our civic center just out the door looks like. So it was interesting seeing it from the top down, like being a on the top of the building, kind of looking down into the patio, because then you can kind of see what what the landscape of Civic Center will and could look like. So I encourage anybody who's interested, let me know. I'm happy to connect you to um, people to talk to to be able to get a nice tour of that. So. You know, um, I'm so thrilled that we had Professor Sharkey here today because it really underscores all of this work that we do and what the, the downstream importance of it is, and I'm just listening to the stuff that you guys are talking about, and I'm thinking about how uh, constructive and, and helpful that is to the city as a whole, and um, I think that that presentation um, is going to be a bit of a touchstone for us over the next year or so, because I, that's that's the empirical scientific backing for how we make a difference in communities. And I, I just, I, I'm just really, my mind is still reeling from, you know, just even what we learned during that presentation, but also it's so uh, appropriate that it happened the first day back here with like a brand new commissioner. I just feel like it's, it's getting things off to a good start um, set, setting the right tone for, for how we 
move forward through this this next phase of the commission. So uh, I'm I'm uh, really pleased how that worked out. Um, one thing I did want to mention, uh, I forgot. Uh, I s spoke briefly with former director Dick Andreese. She is in England right now, so she was not able to call in for public comment because it's uh, almost well, it's after 1 a.m. there right now. Uh, but she did want to pass on uh, her sadness and, and condolences over Commissioner Dooley's passing. Um, and uh, last, I, I wanted to say that, uh, you know, I uh, have been going out and around, and it's exciting to see the city start to come back alive. Uh, I went out with friends Saturday night. We went to the Outer Orbit Room, which I don't know if you've been to this place. It's in the Mission. It's the perfect place to get your combination of pinball and Hawaiian food. And if you didn't think that that was a winning combination, let me tell you, you need to go to the Outer Orbit Room uh, because uh, it turns out pinball and Hawaiian food is a fantastic combination, and it's really good food. Uh, and it was also really fun. Uh, they have a beautiful parklet uh, with uh, colored strip lighting, and so I was talking with the owner, Christian, ab about his parklet, and, you know, he is going to have to... Uh, tear it down to comply with the new incoming regulations, but he's committed to doing that. And we talked about all of the uh, design decisions that he has to make, uh, both to facilitate, uh, you know, having a, a viable parklet, um, but at the same time comply with uh, these regulations. And so, uh, of course, I found that really interesting. The other people I was with didn't find that as interesting as I did, uh, but uh, we maybe we talked a little too long about the details of that for everybody else that was there. But, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, the Parklet program is, is going to be a recurring uh, issue, I think, for this commission for, for many years to come as we try and finesse and, and figure out how to balance our, our use of streets and the use of commerce and the use of, of uh, land. But in my mind, at least, although Professor Sharkey said the data isn't there yet, I think uh, they are huge for developing community and giving a sense of community um, and creating more eyes on the street, uh, which I think helps with public safety um, and more lights, more traffic, more joy. I, I think all of these things are just uh, terrifically important for the city and how we move forward over the next couple of years. So anyways, those are my thoughts. Vice President Zazunas. Thank you. Um, I actually had a, a follow-up question. Um, may, maybe through, through the President Director, you might be able to answer. Um, I know you mentioned that the parklets are going to be extending the grant, or the parklet program is going to be extending the, the grant program geographically as well you said or um I, w I know the sf shines was also reopening or and i know that that's been something our commission has uh, made recommendations around to better um do outreach and promote the programs in, in um other neighborhoods so is sf shines planning on doing that same kind of outreach 
Uh, through the chair, um, so yes, SF Shines will be reopening its grant applications um, very soon, actually. I know they're working on that over at uh, the Invest in Neighborhoods team. And then in terms of the Shared Spaces Equity Grant, um, so just to clarify, they are extending the deadline. Deadline, okay. Yes, until the end of April. But I just mentioned that there are seven key neighborhoods where planning department would Got like it. to see more focus outreach. Right. Yeah. Right, because mm -hmm. I know we've made recommendations before, um, especially on businesses that were disproportionately impacted by other city policies to have SF Shines, um, you know, make sure that businesses that maybe don't have traditional use for parklets still get table and chair waiver outreach or that sort of thing. So um, I'm happy to follow up if that conversation to SF Shines is, is going to be had with our office. Thanks. Great. Is there any other comments? Is there any public commenters on the line on commissioners' comments, questions, and new business? There are no commenters. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Next item, please. Item nine, adjournment. This is an action item. SFGov TV, please show the Office of Small Business slide. We will end with a reminder that the Small Business Commission is the official public forum to voice your opinions and concerns about policies that affect the economic vitality of small businesses in San Francisco, and that the Office of Small Business is the best place to get answers about doing business in San Francisco during the local emergency. If you need assistance with small business matters, continue to reach out to the Office of Small Business. And uh, I will make a motion to adjourn. Uh, motion to adjourn by President uh, I Lana. Sorry. Uh, did I was just going to welcome. We have a new staffer, don't we? Are we allowed to announce um, our legacy business staffer? Or no, not yet. They're not here, but I mean. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, 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 now I'm blanking on whether we do roll call before the motion or since we have the city attorney. <laughs> oh, pretty bad. Does it matter sure. whether we do the Deputy roll call? Deputy City Attorney John Givner, you actually don't need a motion and vote to adjourn. You can call an adjournment. Many commissions do take a motion, in which case you should have a motion, public comment, and then a vote. Oh, well. Um, I won't move then, uh, since we don't have to make a motion. Um, and I, I will just adjourn in honor of uh, community leader Mitch Salazar and former commissioner Kathleen Dooley. Thank you. Oh, there we go. We just.